the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. My name is Lee Johnson, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Jason Reed, and today our very special guest, Gavin Mueller. And we are talking about Luddism. But before we get into that, as usual, we're going to get some drink orders and some rants or raves. I'll go first. I'm going to have a Manhattan again with rye, the original way. And this week, I am raving about the 1990 series Northern Exposure. So I was watching something on Netflix, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye that the algorithm recommended Northern Exposure. And I thought, hey, I haven't seen that for a while. So I put it on, and part of it doesn't date so well. Like, for example, they say positive things about Donald Trump. (laughs) This was just when he was an idiot businessman, you know, before he was in politics. But the rest of it is really kind of lovely and sweet. So Northern Exposure, check it out. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that is only just now streaming for the first time. I think that's why you've never ah, seen yeah. it before. Yeah. Okay. But Jason, what about you? I'm going to have just red wine, whatever they have in a vat or jug or whatever the case may be. <laughs> and I am going to rave about disciplined minds, a critical look at salaried professionals and the soul battering systems that shape their lives by Jeff Schmidt. <laughs> It's a really interesting book about professionalism and how professionalism in the academy strips away everything that might have got you interested in intellectual life in the first place and turns you into a cog in a machine. Mm. And it's a book about professionalism that was very professional in its approach. He does really interesting and idiosyncratic things, like he reads an army anti-brainwashing manual and says (laughs) that with a few tweaks, every grad student should read this. It's an interesting and fun book. So I'm happy to have as our guest, Gavin Mueller, author of another great book, Breaking Things at Work, Why Luddites Were Right About Why You Hate Your Job. So Gavin, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, as an American who lives in Europe, I usually will go for a bourbon neat because it's a bit of a taste of home. (laughs) And my rave, a book that I read recently that I enjoyed is Red Internationalism by Solar Mohandesi. Really interesting look at the role of anti-imperialism and Marxism-Leninism and the alliances they forged between the New Left in the U.S., in France, also fighters in Vietnam, to think about it in its time period and its context, why it made sense to people, and also, of course, to think about how you would advance such politics in a very, very different time and context uh, that we have today. Nice. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I think I'm going to go with Gavin on the whiskey. I'll have two fingers of Buffalo Trace and A-Rock, if that's okay. (laughs) And today I'm actually raving about an Indian restaurant in Bristol named Urban Tendoor. Now, I should say first that I've never been to Bristol and I've never been to this <laughs> restaurant. However, it does have a presence on YouTube and TikTok because the owners of this restaurant make these 
pretty elaborate parody videos based on hit songs. So they have a video that's called You're the Non That I Want, you know, from <laughs> Greece. And they have one recently parodying the song made famous by Saltburn, Murder on the Dance Floor, and it's called Tandoor on the Dance Floor. Anyway, <laughs> these performances are so awful that they're amazing. I really want to encourage everyone to check out Urban Tandoor on YouTube, TikTok, wherever you can find it. I'm sure the food is great. And if it's not, I mean, it's at least entertaining advertisement. All right. We have Gavin here with us today because we're going to be talking not only about Luddism, but about his most recent work. So, Jason, you want to set up this conversation for us? Yeah. So the term Luddite generally functions as an insult these days. It is something that people are accused of and something that no one would claim for themselves. To adopt and adapt to new technologies is part of what it means to be progressive and modern, not to mention hip. Moreover, many on the left have adopted technological progress, if not accelerationism or full luxury space communism, <laughs> arguing that technologies such as automation, AI, and so on had the potential to transform society and liberate us from toy only if they could be liberated from capitalist imperatives of profit. However, the history of actual existing technologies paints a different picture. Everything from the laptop to the cell phone have been used to extend the working day. No one's available anymore. No one can miss a call from their boss. And they've also been used to insert consumption to the pores of social life. Is it time to reconsider what it means to be a Luddite? Joining us to discuss this is Gavin Mueller, author of Breaking Things at Work. The Luddites were right about why you hate your job. So the obvious place to begin is who were the Luddites? What did it mean to be a Luddite historically? And how might that idea be extended into the present? Yeah, so the original Luddites were weavers and other textile workers in the beginning of the 19th century in the north and midlands of England. They lived in tightly knit communities and found themselves facing new technologies that threatened to undermine their skills, to reconfigure their work, to degrade the quality of the products being produced, and to allow women and children to enter the manufacturing process. All of these were anathema to the way that these weavers had conducted themselves. Furthermore, their guild had the legal right to control their industry. So they felt this new technologies, the gig mill and the stocking frame, were actually illegal. You can't use them in manufacturing without gaining the proper permissions. They appeal to the crown, do their best to protest against these things. No one's listening to them. And so they're increasingly radicalized, increasingly militant, and they engage in collective struggle and use the banner of a mythical king, Ned Ludd, <laughs> as their leader. So he's their way of having a kind of symbol that connects them all, but also keeps them anonymous. At this point in history, it's illegal to join anything that looks like a trade union. So anything that they do, any kind of collective action they take is against the law. And so these followers of Ned Ludd, they write letters, increasingly threatening letters to factory owners and uh, politicians. And eventually they engage in what they're most famous for, 
which is night raids on factories that did not comply with their demands, in which they smashed the machines that were undermining their livelihood. And so this is where the kind of pejorative connotation for the Luddites comes from, because this is the early 19th century. This is one of the first industries that's really industrializing. So it's this ragtag bunch of weavers is trying to fight the Industrial Revolution with hammers. That's so absurd. That's so ridiculous. You know, it's so, <laughs> so retrograde and pointless. So this is what Jason mentioned. You know, this is kind of an insult, right? You have this irrational outburst against progress, against the world improving, against things getting better. Even if you don't like it, it doesn't make sense to oppose it because it's inevitable. So part of my project is really to completely turn around that way of thinking and to say, well, these people were doing something that was quite rational. They actually took a very knowledgeable, critical, multifaceted approach to technology that I think we can learn from in our own day. This might be to take a devil's advocate position, but I'm wondering if you could tease apart then, given the last point you made, the critique of technological progress that I think today is mostly associated with Luddites. They hated technological progress, and so they smashed machines. Tease that apart from something more like concerns over control of one's workplace, the previous relationship between, let's say, capital and labor, or owner and worker, because it seems to me like these are two separate issues that in Luddism sort of come together, and maybe we should keep them apart more than we normally do. Yeah, well, I think on the one hand, the best way to understand what the Luddites were doing were engaged in a form of labor struggle, right? This wasn't just like, my phone is annoying and I wish we could go back to the 90s and live in the moment kind of thing. They were directly <laughs> confronting the conditions of their work. And not only that, but because Malthusianism was the prevailing economic doctrine, once you have no job, there's nothing for you, you'll starve to death. And indeed, this is what happened to these communities. So I think it's important to understand that as a labor struggle. And I think the lens that that gives us is to understand new technologies as not representing some abstract progress, but actually intervening into a conflictual social mm. field. You already have a struggle between capital, labor, various interests at work in the state. Now technology is altering the political balance. So the Luddites understood the technology as political, and the particular politics that they understood and engaged with was the politics of work. And to me, that is actually one thing that, again, the stereotypes of being a Luddite or the popular use of that term, we tend to miss, right? It's just like, oh, I want to go back to the retro technology or something like that. And we miss the fact that historical Luddites were engaged in a labor struggle. This is actually a much more useful lens for understanding the development of contemporary technologies today. Gavin, I want to also play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, though. I think I'm more the devil than the advocate. <laughs> I am also concerned, like Rick, that we don't properly separate different things that were going on in the original Luddite struggles. So one, a politics of work. Two, resistance to the presumption that technology progresses, it's inevitable, it's natural, and there's nothing that one can do about it. I think those are two different things. I stipulate that what Luddites were struggling against was very much labor exploitation, that the struggle was a class struggle. I don't think that that necessarily obligates one, even a worker, 
to rejecting technology and technological advancement mm. altogether as always anti-labor. Mm. So here's what I would like to ask you. And honestly, this is for my own benefit, as I assume it will be for listeners as well. I would like for you to talk about the relationship between technology and classes as it's changed since the original Luddite struggle. One of the things that I think we see now is that people who want to call themselves the new Luddites for many of the same reasons that the original Luddites served whatever, what was the king's name? Ned Ludd. Ned Ludd, right. Yeah, for many of the same reasons. Today, it's not the case that the average worker's relationship to technology is one of some completely alien exploitative form. Technological progress is a part of workers' lives now and in many ways does make work life better. I wonder if the way that we talk about the class formation of the Luddites just doesn't translate to today. Yeah, a couple of things. One is the Luddites didn't envision themselves as just opposed to technology. They said, we don't like the conditions under which you're introducing this technology. You know, if you want to use these things, okay, but you can't use them to undermine pay rates. Mm -hmm. If you want to use these new technologies, okay, fine, but we have to keep the same people employed at the same rates and we still set the terms, you know, we have to operate by mm -hmm. the old agreements, but with new technology. But the whole point of these new technologies was precisely to undermine the status as skilled laborers so that you wouldn't have to pay people as much, that you could produce things more cheaply. That was the very motivation for introducing the technology. So that was basically a non-starter for the people using the technology. I think when you look at technology today, right, and I think this is another thing to keep in mind, just like the Luddites are not knee-jerk anti-technology, I would call them critical of technology in that they think of technology not as neutral or not as just bad, but as operating on a field of power relations, changing the balance of those power relations. And I think we still see similar things like that today. Actually, when you look at what people say about their jobs or how people experience their jobs or changes at people's jobs that they don't particularly agree with or like, often we see technology as part of that. There is actually a contemporary relevance. Just as workers 200 years ago were saying, hey, this isn't just some new thing that's going to make everything better. This is changing things. And maybe it's changing things in ways I don't like. And we have to figure out how we might collectively not let that happen. Workers today should do similar things. A new technology, a new app, a new productivity <laughs> suite, a new machine. Yeah, don't we all love when we get that email and say, oh, guys, we're moving to this. Do we, though? No, we don't, right? So I think it's actually maybe a less existential question than it was for the Luddites. But I think in some ways it really does resonate. We often don't like that. And we feel disempowered when those things happen. And often the motivation for introducing a new platform or new technology or new machine or whatever it is, depending on our job, the motivation is not to make our work easier or better or more enjoyable. The motivations are typically to make someone else more money in one way or another, to improve efficiency and often at our expense, at the expense of the people who are actually doing the work directly. I mean, on that point, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. Obviously, that is all true. And if that's what we understood by Luddism, a critical approach to the ways that capitalism manipulates the conditions of work to disadvantage the worker, whether that manipulation has to do with technology or whether that manipulation has to do with ideology or religion or any kind of internal social structure, I agree with all of that. I mean, I guess my worry is that 
over the years, for whatever reason, and I think your analysis has pretty much borne this out, the translation of Luddism is first anti-technology and then second, a labor struggle. Right. Yeah, it's a bit of a fine line to navigate, I suppose. And I think that is part of what I'm trying to do in the book and part of what I see other writers who are writing about the Luddites also, I would say, doing so in a nuanced and sophisticated way to say it's not about rejecting technology. It's about taking a critical perspective and really saying, do we need it? Does it make it better? If we don't want it or we don't like it, what are our options? And to be particularly critical and particularly observant when these things are happening around work, Mm -hmm. because the politics there are, on the one hand, very obvious, and on the other hand, the very politics we're encouraged to never notice. Right. So that's one reason, I think, to draw attention to that. And of course, it doesn't end there, right? I write about consumption and other things. Capitalism has a lot of moving parts, as it were, to function. But technology is something that, yeah, we should be critical of and really ask these hard questions and also ask what other options are there. I mean, one thing that's just like one of those little counterintuitive anecdotes that you stumble upon that you like to roll out is I think you can describe a lot of people who are enthusiastic about technology as Luddites. So I write about free software hackers, not hackers as in cyber criminals, but people who are into programming, but not working for a corporation. They were kind of like doing their own thing, exploring systems. It's like the early days of software programming. And they developed, because it was not a formal industry at that point, they developed their own ways of working, their own forms of collaboration where you said, hey, how do you do this? And someone would just send you their code and then you could copy it or adapt it in your way. That's how people learn to program in the early days. And that's how a lot of actually really useful software was created in the early days. And then software becomes this valuable commodity People like Bill Gates say, hey, we don't want you guys sharing your code anymore because that's a threat to our ability to put it in a box and make people buy it. So they get the courts to say, okay, well, computer code is now covered by copyright. It's automatically intellectual property as soon as you write it down. These programmers, they hated that. They said, this is like some new way of programming. We don't agree with it. It's a threat to how we do things. And they develop these free and open source software licenses which roll back copyright and create an entire ecosystem of free software. To me, that's quite Luddite. They saw this new way of doing things, these new forms of technology and forms of digital rights management and copyright. And they said, this is going to completely destroy what we love to do. But we can collectively mobilize to prevent that from happening. One of the side effects of that is that corporations, even today, still don't have control over programming languages. The programming languages are independent of any company. Therefore, computer programmers are some of the best jobs because they're very flexible. They can move from company to company. They can develop their skills autonomously. They don't even have to go to university, you know, and they can still be a really good programmer, work for Google. I know people like this. And it's all because of what I would classify as this Luddite movement. Now, the first thing when you say a Luddite, you're not going to think of computer programmers or advanced hackers. But I think it really works in that sense, right? And the original Luddites, they were also skilled craftspeople. They were good at using tools, the tools that they like to use. So they were in some ways technologists of their own day. They just thought certain technologies did the things that they wanted them to do and other technologies were a threat. I think the term Luddite often functions as a strange kind of blackmail, this all or nothing for technology. Like if you're critical of one kind of technology, people are like, oh, what are you, a Luddite? Are you against 
against, you know, then they name something beneficial, like, are you against vaccines? Are you against antibiotics? Or do you want to bring out the leeches again? It's blackmail of an all or nothing acceptance of technology. But as you're saying, it seems to me that it's more accurately understood as exactly the opposite of that, as an attempt to critically assess what technologies are useful and good and what technologies are harmful. And you bring up this phrase, machinery hurtful to commonality as a criteria of evaluation in the early Luddites. If we want to talk about Luddites as being critical, we have to talk about what are the terms of our criticism. How are we assessing the good or bad of a particular technology? So I'm wondering if you talk about that in terms of both Luddism historically, but also contemporary issues. Yeah, I guess one way that I would address is machinery hurtful to commonality. The great line and very prescient is that capitalism's deployment of technology at work has some pretty common features. Happens differently at different times times in different industries, but there are patterns that you can detect. So the person who figures this out in a conscious way is about 100 years after the Luddites. It's Frederick Taylor. The Marxist who figured out that Frederick Taylor figured it out comes a few decades later. Harry Braverman, in his book, Labor and Monopoly Capital, basically reconfigures Marxist capital around understanding Taylorism. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is actually the essence of the capitalist deployment of technologies. What technology gives you? It doesn't just make things faster or cheaper. So in many cases, it does the opposite. But what it can do, what it's quite good at doing, and what capitalist deployment of technology tends to do in many, many different situations, first of all, it separates, this is Braverman's terminology, separates conception from execution. So if you're a Luddite, you're a skilled weaver, or if you're a programmer, or if you're living in the time of Taylor, you're working in a factory, but the factories then, they didn't have things like assembly lines yet or anything like that. So as a worker, you and your fellow workers, you had to come together and be like, all right, how do we put this car together? Or how do we make this object? And you had to come up with your own processes for doing so. And therefore, you had a lot of control over what the pace of work was, over what work itself looked like, how you related to one another. Not only that, but your manager, your boss, and certainly the owner of the factory, they didn't actually really know how things worked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, how things have changed. If you stopped, yeah, (laughs) they wouldn't know what to do, right? And this was continually frustrating for them. And so Frederick Taylor, he's basically this guy who comes along and he says, if we change the state of affairs, we have to reverse this. We have to make it so only management knows how things are done in a comprehensive way. Right. And we need to make sure the people doing the work have as limited an understanding of the total process as possible. And when we do that, we get all sorts of advantages. We can control the pace of work. We can set workers onto repetitive tasks that are really easy to ratchet up in pace. When they're doing that, they'll be isolated from their other coworkers because they're not going to have to collaborate as much. They're not going to have to organize themselves. We're in charge of the organization. We're in charge of telling people what to do. So that way, you undermine any kind of collective activity of what these people are doing. And this is what you see happening again and again. This is literally, you look at an Amazon warehouse, and it's the perfect example of Frederick Taylor's dreams of Taylorism. Let's isolate workers. Don't give them any kind of comprehensive understanding. Use technology to force them to engage in repetitive, simplified motions. Don't use their brains at all and isolate them from one another. Amazon warehouses are extremely good at doing all of those, and they use technologies, including digital technologies, sensors, cameras, etc., to enforce that. 
when I'm critical of technology, what am I looking for? What am I thinking about? This is one of the things to think about, right? How is your work being restructured? How is it taking away your ability to understand what you're doing, to control what you're doing? How is it isolating you from the people around you, from the other people who are part of the process of whatever it is your work might be? How is it taking away your ability to control your own pace? How is it observing you? This is another thing. Taylor was like, we got to watch these people. We have to photograph, right? Well, he, it was actually the next generation of people that really did all these time motion studies. They took pictures of, you know, using a shovel or laying a brick. We have to surveil the entire work process so that we develop a comprehensive understanding. And now with digital technology, that can be done to degrees that would only be the wildest dreams of Frederick Taylor. Why is surveillance such an integral part of digital technology? The early digital people, they hated it. They were so paranoid about <laughs> big government surveilling them. This is like their whole thing. And yet that just kept popping up. Why? Well, you know, that's extremely useful for capitalist social relations to have this record of everything that's being done so that then you can reconstruct it along your own design. So I think understanding these motivations, understanding these forces that are at work in technological development, in the use of technology, how it appears, how we have to interface with it. These are the kind of things to look for in developing a critical perspective of technology. And you don't have to read my book <laughs> to come to these conclusions. It's nice if you do. I appreciate that. But part of the story that I want to tell is not that people need to listen to me to tell them to do these things, but that throughout history, people who are intimately affected by these forces continually come to these conclusions. The Luddites come to these conclusions. A hundred years later, the people who are suffering under Frederick Taylor's uh, attempts to restructure their work coming to very similar conclusions. And then another hundred years later, people with computers are also saying, it's happening to us. It's not that people don't know it. I think that maybe people don't always know that there's a history here. Yeah. It's not just you. There's other people out there in your own time. There's other other people in the past, these things happened to them, and some of them fought back. And maybe when we start paying attention to that, we can develop strategies and tactics in our own moment. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. Gavin, I'm less knowledgeable about the practices of weaving in the early Industrial Revolution, but I am knowledgeable about the meatpacking industry in Chicago and the labor movements that grew up around that. 
So many of the things you were saying rang a bell with socialists and anarchists involved in the eight-hour working day movement and so on, especially the complaint in the meatpacking industry that trained butchers coming from Bohemia, Germany, Poland, skilled artisans were being replaced by, well, in this case, a disassembly line, which allowed more unskilled workers to engage in repetitive tasks that would, by the end of the process, completely butcher a hog or a cow or whatever. Now, you can't butcher a cow without using really sharp knives. And so there is a tremendous difference between a skilled artisan wielding a knife to butcher an animal and a bunch of unskilled labor walking around with sharp instruments, not pacing their work to their own body or the work in front of them, but being paced by the clock of the disassembly line and so on. The complaint was, this is a really dangerous introduction you're making here. You're threatening our lives by introducing this technology. The increase in efficiency and the increase in managerial effectiveness that you were describing in relation to Taylor with almost every kind of automation, there are dangers posed to the people who are now working with this new technology. Butchering poses great dangers. And still today, you know, people are cutting off their thumbs and Purdue chicken processing plants, but also then less spectacular, but still relevant dangers like carpal tunnel syndrome or other such conditions that are brought about by the introduction of technology. So I was wondering if you could say something about about the way in which automation, sure, it may have its benefits in some way, but it really does alter conditions of the workplace. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I don't actually write about meatpacking, but I did read a bit about it in the research of the book, and I'd love to continue to learn more about it because it's quite fascinating and relevant. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like at the beginning, Jason mentioned these sort of more utopian aspects on the left about thinking about technologies. Well, it's relieving burdens. It's going to free people from work. It's going to make things cleaner, better, safer. That is unfortunately not a very good understanding of actually existing automation. Actually existing automation is precisely as you describe. It's not introducing a technology and now we don't need people to butcher the cow. It's we're going to butcher the cow in a new way. In fact, many times introducing automation increases the workforce right. because it's just the types of jobs they're doing are very different. Exactly as you point out, their jobs tend to be less skilled. And the pacing and the movements and other aspects of these jobs are going to be controlled much more directly by the technology. So I always try to impress upon people when I talk to them about these subjects, two things. One, automation doesn't mean you don't have workers anymore. You will always have workers. It's just that you might not see them. They've been squirreled away somewhere or their work has been altered in some way. So that's one. And then related to that, any efficiencies that emerge from technology are born directly by those workers who are continuing to work in that system. Right. If your Amazon package is there overnight, it's not because of the you know miraculous algorithms of <laughs> Jeff Bezos. It's because they force people to work with no brakes and they have to pee in a bottle in their car. That's why it's so efficient. 
all these efficiencies come at a cost. You know, a lot of people today talk about, well, we live in a post-industrial society, and that's actually good because industrial jobs are very dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. When you actually read a lot of industrial sociology from the rise of white-collar work, a lot of it was about all the new injuries mm -hmm. and physical problems yeah. that were emerging from offices, from typewriters, from computers. I was really surprised, actually, in my research to find that, that this was like a major concern when workplaces were becoming post-industrial. It's like, well, it's actually injuring people a lot in very new ways. So I think this is always something we have to keep in mind. If we want to make jobs better, if we want to make people's lives easier, which I think if we're on the political left or socialists or anti-capitalists or whatever, generally we think that's a good idea. If we want to reduce toil and relieve burdens... Technology on its own is not a way to do that. We need to really think about the totality of people's work processes and how they relate to other people. It might be that the best way to improve the lives of Amazon delivery people is to not have overnight delivery, right? right? We might just have to go back to the dark ages when it took three days. Shut your mouth, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I live in Europe, so they never really got to that point, in part because of the better labor protections here. Mm -hmm. So it is in some ways like living in the 90s. One of the differences in moving away from skilled work performing tasks to unskilled labor serving the machines is that skilled labor has, one might say, a built-in organization already. You pointed earlier to the guilds, but, you know, I have to acquire the skill somehow. Education is a social activity, and therefore there's a built-in organization around this. Unskilled labor has no built-in organization around it. Often in the late 19th century in Chicago, for example, the labor tensions were between the skilled labor and unskilled labor precisely because unskilled labor didn't really have an automatic interest in organization, whereas skilled labor did. And so I'm beginning to see that there are machineries that are hurtful to commonality, but they're hurtful to commonality because they enforce isolation, move us away from these natural forms of sociality that would have occurred without the introduction of automation. Sometimes labor historians will be like, ah, you want to bring back the racist AFL, <laughs> do you? So for listeners who don't know all the history, these tensions between skilled and unskilled workers would often take nativist or racist or other discriminatory forms. Sure. Many labor historians would say some of the major achievements of the workers' movement came from the CIO, which was formed by the unskilled workers to represent their interests, and that they were in many ways more progressive because they had the potential to see a bigger picture rather than just a very narrow protecting my job. I think that's something we need to be alive to, right? No desire to recapitulate those kinds right. of forms. Mm -hmm. But also, I've worked a lot of different jobs. I think many people People find weird forms of enjoyment and pleasure and skill in all sorts of terrible jobs. That should be our motivation to improve the conditions of work. Maybe technology is part of that. Maybe certain technologies are useful and the workers say, yeah, I like that. It helps me. It's great. Others, maybe they don't. But right now, we don't live in a system where we're able to have those conversations and where those conversations have a political mm -hmm. effect. In Europe, you do in an ideal sense. I live in the Netherlands, and you have works councils. Officially, they are allowed to do precisely this. They want to use a new machine or something. The works council is allowed to evaluate it. You can send a delegation to the factory in China to look at the machine and be like, okay, well, you know, these are our conditions. In practice... 
they kind of rubber stamp it. But there is this infrastructure there that to me is quite interesting. We don't really have that in the U.S. As I detail in my book, the U.S. labor movement tended to take implementation of new technology off the bargaining table Mm -hmm. in favor of other things to negotiate for, such as wages and hours, which reach a limit. You know, everyone knows the little graph where compensation flatlines and the productivity keeps going. Yeah, we all know that classic. (laughs) So that ended up being a very limited overall strategy. And part of the motivation there is to precisely say, okay, if we're interested in improving work, the way to do that is to improve the political situation of workers, unions, and other ways to advocate for their interests. And that part of those interests, part of the things that we need to think about that we need to politicize are these kinds of technologies. I mean, I'm not a science fiction author, I'm an academic, but it's interesting to think about like, what kind of technologies could we have if we had a very different value system that was driving the development of these technologies? Right now, the value system is about making a profit for a very small number of people at the expense often of the people who are most directly affected by those technologies. That's the capitalist value system. But what if we had a different type of value system where the technology wasn't indirectly involved in making things efficient, but we were directly and consciously thinking about, let's make work better for people. Let's make it easier or more fun. Let's make burdens evenly shared. I will say I'm cautiously curious about gamification. I think it can certainly be evil. You're playing a game, but you're actually doing something productive. That can be evil. But maybe there's a positive form of gamification where something that's boring is made a little more fun because it's a game. You know, these are things that right now we can only speculate about. We can only write science fiction about it because we have to construct a very different type of world to see those values realized. But I would love, this is the ultimate goal, right, that our world starts to incorporate these values into thinking about technology and using technology and developing technology. And we have a very different technological world. We don't have an anti-technological world. We don't have a primitivist world. We just have technologies developed according to very different values. To me, that's quite exciting. And I think even people who are like, technology is great and they love it, can get behind that way of thinking. Right? That's me. I'm behind that way of thinking. <laughs> yeah. And if I could, I want to pick up on this argument that you're making, Pache, the argument that productivity and efficiency are the most important things. But let me give you an example. I'm actually borrowing from a friend of mine, Amy Winling, and her book, Karl Marx on Technology and Alienation. And she tells this story about how there was a point at which in factories, there were machines that were built for the purpose of making work more efficient and productive that were built only so that children could operate them. One of the arguments was there's nothing we can do about child labor laws because only children can operate the machines, right? Like, what are we going to do if we have to fire the children (laughs) because nobody else can fit inside this machine? Now, a couple of things I want to point out about that story. One, capitalists don't invent the tech. They didn't build the machines. They didn't design the machines. They're using the machines for the purposes of, in this case, I think Wendling would argue, and I would agree, the exploitation of labor. That seems very clear. It is the case that other machines can be built that would be more efficient and more productive and would actually alleviate the burdens. I'm not sure that I don't still just get a little bit of a chill in my spine when we talk about technology as if you're either for it or against it. And I know that's what you're saying as well. But I think if we could just return to your earlier point about the message of the Luddites having a critical relationship with technology 
And your most recent point, it is not the case that technology has to function in the way that it is currently functioning, right? Like it can be less exploitative. It can be less miserable. But a worry that the let's break all the machines approach sounds paradoxically very close to the mantra of tech itself, move fast and break things. Mm. Yeah, well, I think breaking things is one form of struggle that people, when they face technology that they find unjust or annoying, hurtful to commonality, or they have a problem with it, that they do directly confront it. Or that they don't understand. Sure, sure. I mean, I think maybe that should be the first thing, because at least factory workers understood the machines that they were working on. The average American worker right now does not understand what an algorithm is or how it functions. Yeah, well, it depends on the worker, right? So if you're someone who, for instance, who makes a living making content, you're an influencer or something like that, then you actually do develop this intimate awareness. Yeah, but then you are not the average American worker. You are a very, very small percentage of the labor force in the United States. Yeah. I'm just saying what I think is a largely unobjectionable point, that the average American worker does not understand the technology by which they are being exploited. Oh, yeah. I mean, these things are black boxed from us all the time, right? I mean, even the people who make a living off of their YouTube channel can only guess right. at how the algorithm works. Yeah. And this is actually a source of continual frustration and collective action by YouTubers is they want a fairer algorithm. They want a more transparent relationship with YouTube and with monetization. I mean, I don't watch YouTube native content. I actually dislike it intensely, but my tastes don't determine everything. So people are out there engaging in struggles that to me are quite recognizable saying, look, you're making us work according to this technology. One criticism they have is you have to work all the time to be a successful YouTuber. If you miss a day, you're going to be deranked. They figured that much out. They don't want things to be changed and altered, but they do want some more transparency. And in some ways, you can think about all the annoying things that sometimes they engage in, like the various ways they hack the algorithm or boost their visibility. And there's this famous case of these girls who would wear revealing clothes and make reply videos because at that point in time, the algorithm favored reply videos. And so they all of a sudden became hugely popular. Maybe that's not the best way to do things. But if we understand that people enter into these relationships at their job or however they're making money, technology is a part of that. It's an antagonistic relationship. It's not always a nice relationship. They struggle against it. It annoys them. It's a block. They have to figure out ways to pack through it. We can understand that this is a symptom of a problem. This is a symptom of something that's not fair. It's not working for these people. And these people are showing us. Sometimes they're very vocal. They say, you know, YouTube, we hate you, or we're going to go on strike or boycott the system or whatever it is. Sometimes they engage in these other resistant practices. Then you have to do a little work of interpretation to say, oh, they're not just gaming the system in some neutral way. The fact that they are compelled to game it in this way is evidence that we're dealing with an unfair system. And I think that's where I come down on that. As far as breaking things, I mean, my interest in breaking things is not just to break them. <laughs> I do want to retain that aspect that, okay, if people at work are harming the implements at work, again, this is a symptom that something is very, very wrong here, that things are not fair and that we need to understand the situation. But I think my interest in it is precisely that these are practices, you don't just break something and then it's broken, you don't do your job anymore, but that in the act of breaking things, in the act of engaging in these other forms of resistance, 
you develop a more critical perspective of technology and of your job. You find the other people around you who are also coming to these conclusions. One lesson of the Luddites, it's not individuals running out and breaking machines willy-nilly. They engage in highly organized collective action. And this is actually something that if we want to be Luddites today or see value in what they did, to me, that's a really important component that we need to think about not just breaking things because it makes us feel good or because we feel justified. I mean, I don't have a huge problem with that, but the act of resistance is a way that we find our comrades, you know, and we can engage in more transformative forms of action. We can actually start to move the overall situation into a better place. I hear what you're saying, Gavin, and I just want to say that on principle, I don't think that we're that far apart. I suppose my worry is that if the first message is not understand the technology, like we as workers need to make an effort to educate ourselves and each other about the technology that is exploiting us. If that's not the first message, then it just very quickly devolves into break things. I think that oftentimes when you do work with technologies, you develop an understanding of them. And sometimes you develop an understanding of the gaps and the cracks and the things that you can take advantage of. The first place to start when you want to understand a technology is you look at the patents, all the copy from the people who are making it and selling it and deploying it. That's one way to understand it. But another way to understand it, I think a more useful way, is to talk to the people who have a direct experience with it. Even people that are quote-unquote de-skilled. And I think it's important to clarify that de-skilling is a technical term of art that really is more about the replaceability of the worker rather than is the worker good at their job or do they have a particular mm -hmm. ability or talent. I think sometimes that gets confusing just by the nature of the term. Even people that are easy to replace you have a few days with something, you start to learn some things about it. And actually, the more you know about something, the more manifold ways you've discovered on how to break it as well. Yeah, I mean, again, I want to say that I do appreciate the principled perspective from which you're coming, but I don't think that that account is true. I don't think it's the case that if you just work you're going to understand the tech. Maybe that would have been true if we were talking about machines 100 years ago or 150 years ago, but I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I think that now, let me backtrack a minute. So my understanding of what you said at the very top of this episode was that the real message of the Luddites is that we be critical of the capitalist deployment of technology, the seemingly natural and inevitable forward movement of technology, values that capitalism associates with progress and productivity. That's what I heard you say was the real message of the Luddites. That should be the message of workers currently. We should be critical of the technologies that are exploiting us. But we cannot be critical of technologies that we do not understand, period. So in the absence of a real movement to say, look, as workers, we need to become more educated about the technologies that are exploiting us. We're just going to fall back into this, you know, don't use it, break it, bust it up, be opposed to it. And that seems to me neither progressive nor even helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think the project of becoming technologically critical does necessitate a kind of literacy. 
I think one of the interesting things that's happening now is that the people working for big tech companies, many of them are increasingly radicalized. And I think that's a great resource for all kinds of movements because those technologies touch practically every job and definitely our everyday lives. And so if we have people who have this more intimate understanding of the development of those technologies, that can be really useful. Mm -hmm. At the same time, when people develop technologies, there's a lot of things they don't anticipate about the effects of them, how people use them, how people integrate them into their lives and into their work. And I think that's also a really valuable source of knowledge. So I think connecting those is something that's really interesting to me and one reason that I'm really interested in the tech worker organizing. And this is also something that's happened in previous generations. There was this organization in the 60s and 70s called Science for the People that was scientists and engineers who had been radicalized by the political situation and wanted to think about how can we use our knowledge to aid these progressive movements. And actually, that organization has been revived in the past few years, Science for the People. They, they have like a, a website and everything. And I think, yeah, that motivation is really important because, as I mentioned, part of the development of technologies is to cut us off from that. Is it though? I think we're probably... Is it though? Well, think, I have a good example here. Like my day job is media studies professor. All my students, they're basically majoring in the internet, right? So they're like <laughs> new media majors. So you think, okay, these are the students. They wanted to focus their education on digital technology and media and the internet. And they don't know what a file is on a computer. Mm. Actually, it's funny because, you know, just to shed light on the technology behind this podcast, we're recording through Audacity. <laughs> I actually had Audacity because I use it in a class. A free software project, by the way. <laughs> exactly. That's precisely why we use it. And it was really interesting because when I started doing this, I would be like, okay, well, just download this program and install it and then bring it to class and we'll do it. And none of my students could do that. Very few of them had the ability to download a file, find it, to open it, to install a program by themselves. Then we had to download music files and then put those files in Audacity so we could kind of play with them. And, and they really didn't know how to do that. Some of them did. Some of them were very savvy, but I would say 80% of them struggled a bit. And I was surprised and I had to think about it. Fortunately, I was working on this book, so it, it clicked pretty quickly. Like They grew up in a very different environment with computers than I grew up with. And you don't have to be that much older than 20-year-old to have a very different experience of a computer where you had to know where files were and mm -hmm. open them and access them. Mm -hmm. They don't have to do that anymore. Their primary experience is through phones, it's through apps, it's through these curated platform experiences. And what that does is it really cuts them off from the very structure of these technologies that they're using all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I, in my mind, whenever I'm using these things, I have this idea of like a file structure. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Same. I guess it shows, you know, how I spent my, how I misspent my youth. But that's my mental mapping of what's going on there. And they don't have that. And that's because of deliberate choices by the people who are designing interfaces and thinking about how people relate to computers. They actually want to keep the files away from you. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to access the files. They don't want you to play with the files. Maybe they think they're protecting you because you make a little change and now your computer doesn't work or something like that. But I actually think it's more nefarious that they want you to be just a boring consumer of curated digital products and do exactly what they want you to do. They want to take away a power that you might have had from an earlier generation of personal computing. Skills that you had to have just to use a computer in a basic, fluent way, 
not only are they not necessary, but they make them actively difficult to access. Yeah, no offense to you or Jason here, but that is some Mac people speaking right there. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't always a Mac person, okay? So, Can I just point out that out of all of us, I'm guessing I'm the only one speaking to you through a Linux machine that is running as much as I can. I mean, Lee forces me to use Zoom, but as much as I can, I'm using all non-proprietary software. Yeah, I can only imagine how much effort that takes. But at the same time, you have developed this much more intimate understanding of how these things work with like drivers and plugins and, you know, interoperability than even I have. And certainly than 99% of my students who, again, I mean, I expected them to be advanced in their abilities and maybe they are, which is an even darker kind of point to make. Isn't it just the case that now the worker struggle has to assume that education about how technology works is priority number one. Okay, I understand that your Macs and your iPhones are pretty and easy, but you actually need to understand how this works. Oh, absolutely. And one great motivation to really learn is to engage in forms of struggle and collective struggle, right? Exactly. When I really get annoyed, then I'm like, all right, I'm figuring out how this works because I don't want to do it the way I'm supposed to. Yeah. That's the motivation there. (laughs) Fortunately, I know and I've developed techniques where I feel fairly confident that I could figure something out. This is one reason I write about the right to repair movement, which actually I would characterize as Luddite in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I also like it because it's successful. Mm -hmm. If you're a pro-labor person, you don't always have tons of victories to point to. Maybe more now than in the past, but you know, not always the most optimistic environment. But with right to repair, that is becoming successful where Apple's not allowed to say you can't fix up your device if you have the ability to do it. The main drivers of this were actually farmers who had these John Deere branded tractors that had basically digital technology that required you to... It's just exactly Apple's business model. You have to go to the John Deere Mm -hmm. store to fix it. You can't fix it yourself. (laughs) Even though a lot of farmers and people are operating tractors are like, I mean, I know enough about a tractor. I can fix this, right? I don't need to spend all (laughs) this money going to the John Deere equivalent of the Genius Bar to do that. (laughs) So what the farmers actually did was they were like, well, how do we get around these digital lockouts? And they found that there was this pirated software developed in Estonia that could basically jailbreak your tractor. And they were doing that. They weren't just doing that. They were also engaged in forms of political advocacy, but they were engaged in direct action to say, let's break this deleterious form of technology and let us fix the tractors the way that we want to. Farmers tend to be, for reasons mysterious to me, way more sympathetic to politicians than, say, professors of media studies. So they actually got a lot of attention and political sympathy. And now we're seeing legislation being passed to say people have a right to fix things. And if they have a right to fix things, that means they have a right to open up the hood, so to speak, and understand them more. That these rules that you can't fix your own stuff... It's not just about fixing it. It's not just about having to make that trip to the genius parts and making sure you don't figure out too much about how things work. Preach. In Apple or John Deere or whatever, keeping you in their pocket as a source of revenue rather than letting you have the autonomy to use your devices the way you want. Here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. 
you can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. So, to the extent that the word Luddite gets used in any positive sense or has been revalorized, there's kind of a neo-Luddite movement that tends to focus on replacing smartphones with flip phones. That seems to be the indicative sort of <laughs> That'll show them. <laughs> I want to bring this up because I don't want to just ridicule this. I think politically, we always have to think about the existing sites of contradiction and opposition. And I want to think about why it is that the smartphone has become the object of contemporary neo-Ludditeism and what is being expressed by that and what can we do with that to make that into a bigger movement and not just a lifestyle accessory. Yeah, I mean, I love going on YouTube and just watching music video from when I was younger, from the 90s, and all the comments are like, I'm 16 years old, I love this, no phones, everyone's living in the moment. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I lived in the 90s, they actually kind of (laughs) sucked. But uh, it's true, there were no smartphones. Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, I want to say, look, we know there's something extremely dissatisfying about the way that so much of our social lives, we have to live them through our phones in various ways, particularly for young people. I mean, for one, well, I'll speak for myself. I feel like I'm old enough that I develop myself as a social person and found ways to talk to people and formed my own self-conception that had nothing to do with what was going on in phones or on social media because I didn't have those things. Now I have them and they're annoying to me, but I find it fairly easy to limit it. But for young people, there's nothing else. They're truly compelled to use these things, even though they find them quite toxic. And even though a lot of the research is coming to alarming conclusions about the effects of smartphones and social media and all sorts of things. I always tell this to students, stay away from the addiction stuff. We don't talk about addiction. We're in media studies. We're not psychologists. But I do want them to think about how these things are designed to be compelling and yet, I would say, impoverished in a way. And the people who want to unplug, I think that's something that we should pay very close attention to. There's a deep need, desire among young people to have another way of doing things. If we didn't have a technology that was based on scooping up data, on turning you into a profile to sell to advertisers, which is basically the only business model that works for social media, Mm -hmm. then what ways could we have of connecting that would be different? And sometimes we see them, but they don't last very long because they don't make money. There's a way that you can take a critical perspective of technology, you can turn it into a lifestyle right? I have a friend, actually, who never changed from the flip phone. Mm. You know, he just kind of stayed there. And it's really annoying in many ways. And he's frustrated in some ways, you know, he still has to have like an atlas in his car. (laughs) But it's also kind of cool. Wow, they're like, you know, I don't know, I guess maybe being a survivalist or something, right? Wow, no Google Maps. How do you get around? So there's a way that this can be a kind of lifestyle, you know,
know, I could absolutely imagine elite private schools where flip phone kids are the cool kid click. No, they're not on Insta. You know, they don't do Snapchat. You can't find them. They're too cool for that. And that falls a bit short of what I want to think of as Luddism, which to me is political. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's something antagonistic and something that's collective and something that also, as I put in the book, something that you can generalize. So I think that when you have a lifestyle movement, again, no problem with it. I think it's great. I think people should experiment with different constellations of technology use. And I think that it helps to demonstrate real problems that we have with existing technologies. However, I don't know that it really creates a politics. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in something that can say, okay, yeah, we can withdraw, but that withdrawal is limited. Only some people are going to be able to do that. You have to have a Facebook login to use all these other sites, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have a phone. You have to have a smartphone in order to, for instance, do two-factor authentication. I can't even check my email unless I have a particular app on my phone. You almost have to have a smartphone to bank nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So you're putting yourself at dramatic inconvenience or impossible situations. And I don't think that's quite realistic. And I would be more interested in a politics that says, okay, instead of just withdrawing to a more comfortable place where we can live in the moment or whatever it is, how can we fight back at a larger scale to say, if we don't like these forms of data collection, if we don't like the really impoverished sociality that we find on Instagram, we have to change not just ourselves, we have to change the system that are there. We can do that. We can set limits. There's all sorts of things that we can do. We can set rules and laws about the forms of surveillance and data collection that these platforms make. It's a big problem, but it's more and more recognized. I mean, publications can't stay in business, right? (laughs) Obviously, people in the political world are hugely upset and afraid of what social media has done to the information environment around politics. There's a lot of dissatisfaction out there. Universities can't stay in business. Yeah, I think that universities are the places that have the expertise and resources and the base of people to really think about alternatives. When I was an undergrad, the university email system was run by the university. And every university has its own system. Yeah, And that was kind of cool because being a network administrator in university, you could like actually work on it and develop your own things. But you could actually embed the values of the university into the platforms. It was about knowledge and sharing. It wasn't about advertising. It was about consumerism. It wasn't about comparing yourself to people around you, there were other values at stake. And it wasn't about outsourcing labor to corporations. Yeah, it was the opposite, right? Let's give people some real practical experience with these tools. Yeah. So I think that there's huge potential. It's difficult, right? Universities, we all work at them, so we all know that they have problems. <laughs> but I always think about the potential for something different. These would be the places to say, look, we have our students. Facebook started, actually, mm-hmm. Just Harvard students. Now, it was started by kind of a scumbag who embedded, you know, crappy values because he wanted to compare girls' pictures. And in some ways, those values are still embedded in that platform much more deeply. But he wasn't trying to make people smarter, happier. You know, he was, he wanted to compare and to collect information. Wait, are you showing up on this podcast and making the bold claim 
that Facebook is not just about connecting people. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> we do this with the students. We have them like read Mark Zuckerberg's public statements, and it's always like, we're bringing the world together. And then you're just like, so would you say Facebook's brought the world together? And they're like, no. <laughs> like, absolutely not. Or, you know, it brings you together, but in this really toxic way. Like, maybe some of those people, I don't want to be brought together with them or yeah, right. on, on these grounds. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when you go to university, right, you want to meet the other people there. You make friends and I could imagine a very different way of interacting online. I mean, it would take resources, it would take vision, it would take ambition. These things are all in fairly short supply at many universities. <laughs> but you know, if we think about a radically different relationship to technology, I think these things are actually, again, they don't have to live in science fiction. They seem like something that could happen if things were just slightly different, if things were a little bit different. I think that's a useful exercise to engage in. But yeah, good for the flip phone kids. I support you. <laughs> I don't. Buy my book. You can get it in paper, right? You don't even need a phone at all. I've heard that it's available at brick and mortar bookstores if those exist in your location. So you don't have to interface with digital technology in any way at all. That said, you you can also probably download it off of it. And read it on your smartphone. But I'm happy for that. And for all the limits of lifestyleism, I am really interested to see these countercultures against forms of technology that are emerging among young people. Because I know the things that I had when I was their age, many of those things are gone. And the reason they're gone is because, well, all your music is on Spotify now. Everything is on these platforms. You don't have cool subcultures and fun places to go and places to feel like you can explore and learn about yourself and meet interesting people. It all becomes very flattened. So I'm quite interested in these countercultures because you never know what interesting things can emerge in those spaces. Gavin, I cannot possibly tell you how much I appreciate you coming to join us today. I think it's maybe one of the most important conversations that we can be having right now. I do believe that there are understandings of what Luddism means that are short-sighted and maybe a little bit oversimplified, and that worries me. But I think that what you've given us is a really expansive and productive way to understand why one might want to be a Luddite. But before we get out of here, I want to give everybody a chance for final thoughts. Gavin, I'm going to come to you last, all right? So, Rick, you first. I just want to echo Lee's thanks, Gavin. This has been a really interesting conversation, and I really do just appreciate your reclaiming Luddism as a labor movement and as a struggle that, yes, it involved technology, but that's not the whole story. And if we focus too much on the technology, we lose the labor struggle side of it. I think that's a really important contribution. So thanks a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we're going to make Luddism sexy again. (laughs) As you said, you know, part of the goal of your book is to make Luddites into Marxists, Marxists into Luddites. Not only do I feel more Luddite, but I feel a more meaningful kind of Luddite, whereas I tend to think of it as just being annoyed by certain technology. I always want to think about where the labor is Mm. in certain kinds of technology, like self-checkout lines are really an attempt to outsource the labor to consumers. I mean, that's 
really what they're doing. I have to look up what the code is for bananas now. <laughs> oh, six three. <laughs> What about you, Gavin? Yeah, well, I want to thank the three of you for a really enjoyable conversation. It's great to talk to people who have understanding of history and theory and politics. And one of the exciting things about writing a book that I didn't aspire to be like a comprehensive history is something a bit more provocative is that it's always a pleasure to talk to people to see the things that they get out of something that you didn't expect or you didn't anticipate or didn't even know about or things you wish you would have put in there or a thread that you didn't even know existed. <laughs> and so I always enjoy having these conversations with people and especially with the three of you. It was really great to reflect and extend some of the things that I was discussing. So Gavin, do you have anything that you want to pitch? you got coming out? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's very boring. I have like an article that's under review. So uh, <laughs> I guess look for that in the next three to <laughs> if it ever comes out. What's it about? <laughs> it's actually about political compass memes. So it's very different than my book, but I also look at a lot of the politics of various digital culture formations. And so one thing that people are doing is they're using the political compass to make memes. And with a colleague of mine here at the University of Amsterdam, we're trying to think about what kind of weird political subjectivities are emerging. What is the imagination at work here? So I'm interested in some of these things. And I think my next project, I'll continue to try to think about online digital culture, how the internet looks today, what people are doing with it, and continue to reflect on how that intersects with radical left and anti-capitalist politics, which is still the thing that is most exciting to me, I guess. I always think it's weird, right? Because I've probably spent more time reading about TikTok and I actually like <laughs> looking at it because it's my job. I need to be current with the literature. But what I really get excited about is the book I brought up at the beginning. I was like, oh, I want to read about what these new left radicals, how they were like forming solidarity campaigns with the Ho Chi Minh. You yeah, know? Yeah. Like, I'm interested in that. And that's really exciting to me. So I just wound up in a media studies department and they tolerate my eccentricities. But I think my next project, I'll try to really bring those two worlds together, thinking about digital culture and also thinking about radical left politics. I don't want to overpromise. I'm really excited to hear about it. Also, please let us know when that piece comes out because we did do an interview with the creator of Know Your Memes, Andrew Barron. Oh, you did? Yeah, several years ago. So uh, that'll give us a chance to plug another episode. This is my <laughs> yeah. dream, right? That my students... They all would come in and I'm like, so, hey, your parents probably wanted you to study medicine, but here you are in media <laughs> studies. So what do you want to do with your life? And they're like, ah, digital marketing. And I'm, well, OK, but think bigger, right? Like Know Your Meme is such an amazing resource. Mm -hmm. We can bemoan the fact that we don't have cool music magazines. Pitchfork just died, et cetera, et cetera. But Know Your Meme is fantastic. And I would love, that's my dream, is I have like a really good student who ends up working there and doing it for real. So, Well, my dream for you is that your students come in and you're like, why are you studying media studies? They're like, we heard about you on Hotel Bar <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I hear that, you know, time out on class and I'll send you guys an email immediately so that you can be alerted. Your fan base is having effects on student recruitment at the University of Amsterdam. So. 
All right. Well, Gavin, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, everybody stay tuned. We will update listeners when Gavin's new piece comes out. And definitely in the meantime, buy his book, which we will also have linked in our show notes for this episode. So the bartender, I don't know if she's a Luddite or not, but she's about to smash something unless we get the hell out of here. (laughs) So I will see you all later. Bye, guys. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.